Foster Cow and Aunt Bella Jenny. With Jason and Amanda, where our mission is to provide strength for the weakest among us. Here we like to talk about foster care and adoption. We tell stories about bio parents, foster parents and foster kids, adoptive parents and adoptive kids, caseworkers, and whoever else can inspire action and encourage understanding of the journey that we and so many others are on. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or any of the major platforms. You can also find us at jasonmpalmer.com. Want to engage with us on our Facebook group? Find the group or page at Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey or facebook.com slash 7timedad. That's a number 7, Time Dad. Welcome back to Foster Care, an Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we're here to talk to Rebecca Britt from Stable Moments. Rebecca is a social worker and horse trainer with a certification as an equine specialist in mental health and learning. She received her bachelor degree of social work from the University of Vermont in 2010 and became employed as a post-adoption case manager. During her work with adopted children, she realized a correlation between how to therapeutically intervene with children. Super <coughs> Sorry, let's start that sentence over. She realized the correlation between how to therapy. Dang it. Yeah. She realized the correlation between how to therapeutically intervene with children surviving with trauma and how to train horses using natural horsemanship. Through the growth of the Stable Moments pilot program, Rebecca has developed the model and is offering it as a practical curriculum to anyone wishing to serve foster or adopted children. Rebecca is following her calling to serve children nationwide by offering training, curriculum, and resources to equine facilities across the country. Rebecca speaks to equine and mental health professionals across the nation about her unique approach and model. She is currently earning her master's degree in program evaluation in hopes of providing all Stable Moments location the best tools for collecting data and demonstrating impact of their programs. Rebecca lives in Satellite Beach, Florida with her husband and son. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you could come on today. Um... We stumbled upon each other online, and, you know, that's, it, it's kind of the way it tends to happen. You, you just run into things that you go, wow, that's that's important. We should look into that. And where we do not have horses ourselves, we had some livestock for a while. We had some ducks and chickens and goats and, and, and that sort of thing, um, but we've never really been into horses much. However, I do have a friend of mine who works with a lot of horses um, out in Colorado, he was a farrier out there, and he's currently working with a lot of zoos and some of the things that they do. But when I was talking to him, he talked about the importance of a lot of the therapeutic horsemanship programs that he's seen and how a lot of his apprentices have come out of those programs, and they speak to the efficiency of how that program can really help break down some barriers to kids with trauma. Yeah, so um, I started my experience with kids who have survived trauma when I started as a post-adoption case manager. And I went to school uh, and got my social work degree. And I really had zero desire to work with kids in foster care. There was one girl in my class that wanted to work with kids in adoption. And I was like, why? I, I had no, like, there was no appeal at all to me. In fact, I wanted to be a probation or parole officer because I wanted to like, 
call people on their bullshit. And I was much more about accountability. So like total opposite, you would think, right? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So the only job hiring in a recession was this post adoption case manager job. And it was like $12 and 78 cents an hour. And they called me in for an interview. And I happened to in the interview, tell them about experience that I had with my adopted cousins. My aunt had uh, lost her son to cancer. He was eight years old, my cousin. And his like dying wish was that they adopt children. Oh, wow. um, kind, of, kind of out of nowhere. So of course, once he passed, they were like, we're going to adopt these kids. Well, the kids that they adopted, my cousins now, um, like the little girl and little boy were actually in a foster home. And in this foster home, the little girl had like Peter pants at three years old and was put in scalding water. She had burns from her feet to her waist. Um, So changing her and stuff was so difficult. And then the boy reported stories of like, they had dog food for dinner. They were treated different than their bio kids. He was tied up with the pigs outside. So to be honest, I didn't really know about this. Um, until this interview, but that was really my first, um, experience with kids who had survived trauma was I got cousins when I was about 12 years old that were three and six and were coming into my aunt's home, um, that actually were rescued from their foster parents who were the abusers. Um, and I learned a lot about like reactive attachment disorder, which was the diagnosis then. Um, a lot of the, um, a lot of the food issues, these kids, my, my aunt and uncle, you know, put locks on the pantries and they probably didn't, they probably weren't the best therapeutic foster parents or adoptive parents eventually. Um, but there wasn't anything out there at that time for them to understand. So they thought they were just going to give love and like treat these kids like any kids. And they had a really difficult time. All of them did. Um, so in my interview at this, position, I told them all about my cousins with reactive attachment disorder. And I guess that made me more qualified than some of the other people fresh out of college. So I got the job. But I still had no background in trauma and didn't understand um, what was the proper way to intervene with these kids. I had just kind of seen it firsthand. And the supervision that I got at this placement was like incredible. Um I could go, I, you know, to my credit, I could go out and make a lot of mistakes and come back and say, like, I'm pretty sure I just like effed this family up. Like, they're never going to want me to come back in their house. The kid was screaming, crawling the walls. And my supervision would be like, you're doing great. Like, let's work with this. Like, what, what could you have said instead? I made, I, I made such stupid mistakes. Like, I went into a kid's house and I'm sitting there with her and I know she's adopted and I said something like, oh, you must look more like your dad because you're so tall and your mom's short. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, she's adopted. Like, (laughs) there's just so many things that, like, oh, post-adoption case manager shouldn't do. And, you know, that's why they pay you $12.75 because you're going to get an an education, really. I should have been paying them for the education I got in that that first job. (laughs) But, I mean, that's the thing. $12.70-some-odd cents. That's, I mean, that's not a lot of money. Our caseworkers and social workers, they don't make a whole lot of money. You know, no, it's, no, it's, it's, uh, 
sad. And, you know, I think when you're first out of college, or at least when I was, I, I didn't, um, I was like, oh my gosh, 40 hours a week benefits, like a real job. Like I, they, I didn't really know to think to advocate for, you know, a better salary or anything. Um, and like I said, it was during a recession. So I was just happy to actually have a job, but I really did learn in that job, uh, the impact of trauma on the human brain. I learned a lot about therapeutic interventions, how to love on the kids, how to be non-punitive, how to do relationship-based interventions. Um, so that was kind of my entry into working with kids with trauma. And really my job was permanence. It was, the goal was permanent. So the parents had called me and said, like, listen, we, I know we adopted her or him, but we're ready to give this kid back. We're done. And my job was to go in and say, like, all right, let's take a break. Here's some therapeutic parenting techniques. Like, here's some psychoeducation about trauma. I'm going to come every week and we're going to make this work. Wow. <laughs> That's getting thrown into the deep end for sure. Yeah. You know, because, yeah, to some level, you know, I think we were kind of thrown in the deep end as well in our own experience because our very first placement was kids who, who had seen their, their father murdered. And, you know, you want to talk about trauma, right? That's that's a good place to start. And uh, we really had no idea what we were getting into there. Yeah, I mean, the nightmares, the tantrums, and just, we were in over our heads. But at the same time being in over our heads, we were willing to learn, too. And that's the thing about today's day and age is mental health and trauma has become, there's so much more information about it now. And mm -hmm. people aren't afraid to talk about it like they used to be. You know, people didn't want to talk about, oh, I need medication or I have to go see a counselor or, you know, I, I need some help. You know, people just didn't talk about it. You didn't share it. And I really feel lucky now that, you know, th with all the information that's out there and people that are doing the studies and the scans and, you know, we're mm -hmm. so much, so much more aware than what we were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I agree. So it's really, it's really amazing to see that you know it's being talked about now. It's not something that you you hide because mm -hmm. you know when my grandmother was young and my mother and all, you didn't talk about mental health. If mm -hmm. you were having mental health issues, you just you didn't speak about that, and you definitely didn't share it with other people. It was something to be ashamed of, and it's mm -hmm. not anymore. And so I think that's really wonderful. Um, we did listen to a few of your podcasts. Um, and so I listened to one of your beginning podcasts about how you kind of, you know, where you started and, um, how your love of horses came when you were really young at like three years old. You had a, mm -hmm. you had a real fascination with horses. <laughs> yeah. Although like I look back now and I'm like, what little girl didn't, you know, want to go ride a horse, right? I don't know. I've had a handful of little girls, and they seem to be really interested in my little pony, but not always, you know, and I want to go ride a horse. They get there, and they go, this smells funny. I don't know about this. Oh, your daughter wants a bunny, but <laughs> that, that's a whole other story. Um, let's see here. So you, you yeah, told once. I got, I got, I, in, so I was interested in horses, and I don't remember even that, but I do know that my parents told me that any time I would pass by this farm when I was a little girl, I um, would ask to pull in. I'd say, like, I want to go see the horses. I want to go ride the horses. And I don't they never did anything with that. They're like, OK, whatever. Sure. 
but I never got lessons. Um, but when I was nine years old, I just got off the school bus at the horse barn. Like, That's I what going, I was going to ask you is about that story. I was kind of curious of how that, that played off. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, I don't really, something triggered in my mind that was like, you know, I can just make this decision on my own, which, you know, that very rebellious nature of mine, you know, much to my parents' dismay in the future, <laughs> um, probably is what got me to be as, uh, you know, dedicated and driven as I am, you know, creating this curriculum, make my own program and all of that is probably like, you know, I can just do this. So yeah, I got off the bus at uh, nine years old at the horse farm. And by the time my parents had figured out where the hell I was, they had decided, okay, we will get you horseback riding lessons. So that's, um, <laughs> that's, that's where that started. It was a little bit of a manipulation, um, but it really actually was something that would prove to, I would go as far as say, save my life as a, you know, a teen or a preteen because I had some sexual trauma that happened when I was 12 and again when I was 13. And, um, I just really fell into kind of a dark hole. And it was one of those situations where the community knew about it. So like, in the first situation, we were such a tight knit community and it was somebody else in the community. So, um, everybody was going to know anyway. And then the second situation was actually a teacher that was at my high school. Um, and that ended up being a really long drawn out three year trial. You know, different people in the community were subpoenaed, all of this kind of crazy stuff. And I really realized like how, how communities really do victim blaming. And I didn't feel once like, oh my gosh, this should have never happened to you. We're sorry or whatever. I felt very much like, well, didn't you like him? And, you know, what did she do? And I'm like, I was 13 and he was 43. Like, um, you know, it was just this weird, like, you know, you need to tell so that you save other girls and all of that. And it was, it was a lot for a 13 year old to have to, you know, carry. So. I will say that like the barn and having my horses was like a very safe place for me. And I just never felt judged. I never felt like that girl. I never felt like I was my trauma. I just felt like my horse had this incredible capacity to carry all of that weight. And my horse was more understanding than humans in, in that time in my life. You know, my friend that I talked with about the uh, the therapeutic horsemanship programs, and I I know enough to know that my dad had a couple horses for a couple of years, and I had to give it a couple shots when he was out of town. That's about you know my my knowledge is. Oh, yeah, so did the four H horsemanship uh, programs. Yeah, with our son but I mean, my knowledge horses. level is is pretty pretty limited to yeah, a handful not of a horses. Whole lot. <laughs> and, and when I was talking with him, um, I mentioned something about you know I you know I bet they probably don't use a whole lot of thoroughbreds and. That sort of thing in that program because, you know, thoroughbreds, the few that I've met were, um, like a small town rodeos and it looked like a, like a six year old girl on a, on a wild horse, you know, as they come in. They're, they're super high strung. And, and I make this comment to him and he goes, what makes you think that? Well, they're kind of high strung animals, aren't they? And, and he talked a little bit about how, how horses being prey animals really feed off of who you are. And, mm -hmm. um, and I noticed, you know, because, I think the same day, actually, I was listening to your podcast going, 
going down the road. And, and you mentioned something along those same lines about how that connection happens between, you know, kids who've been, who've been traumatized and, and horses a lot because of the prey animal connection there. They, they seem to, to communicate well. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that, how that worked for you? Yeah. So, um, when I got, when I got more and more into horses, I really wanted to learn how you train horses. Like, how would I take a baby horse and train them to, to, uh, you know, do the things we want to do with it, J- jump jumps or whatever. And there's no way to like, in my area, there was no way or training at that time to, to get lessons of training horses. It was really just to get lessons to ride them. So I had bought some like books or whatever off eBay and I went to a local horse track like when I was 16 with a horse trailer and a thousand bucks, like I went over to New York and I walked on the back stretch. Like, I don't even know how I did some of this stuff, but I was like, I've got a thousand dollars and I want a horse. And, um, anyway, I ended up packing up a horse that day and bringing it home. And it was a thoroughbred off the racetrack. <laughs> and, um, and I love thoroughbreds because that was the first horse my parents got me. I just loved their, like, they reminded me of me. Like there's this chip on their shoulder. I felt like, like they had this attitude or this like perceived, um, behaviors, but they were really like these beautiful, really athletic, gorgeous animals um, that you could partner with. So in these books, I learned about natural horsemanship and really natural horsemanship, um, rather than like breaking a horse, which is like the cowboy method or what we're used to typically where you like beat a horse into submission. Um, natural horsemanship uses the herd psychology um, to train them. So you become the alpha because if you watch a bunch of horses, um, there's an alpha that basically tells them when to sleep, when to eat, where to, you know, flee, whatever. And they are prey animals. So they basically sleep standing up and they're constantly aware of their environment because they need to know if there's going to be a predator that's going to come in and, and attack them. Very different than like people will say all the time, like, oh, wouldn't this program be great with dogs or whatever? Um, but dogs are predators. So we can have a little bit different of a training style with a dog um, than we would have with a horse. Like a horse needs to know that we're going to trust them. And we they are so sensitive to energy that we can actually like um, the reward for a horse, whereas like a dog, you could throw a treat and they're like, okay, great. I did something good. A reward for a horse is a release of pressure. So like literally, if I'm just looking at you, like, and this is a podcast, so obviously people can't see what I'm doing. But if I'm like looking at you, like, like you better move. And my eyes are very like, you know, my brow is furled and I'm like, you better move. If a horse moves and then my face relaxes, the horse goes like, oh, that must be what she wanted me to do. And it's the exact same thing in the herd. If you look in the herd, there's one horse that's pinning its ears back and gritting its teeth at another horse. And the, the subservient horse moves back or moves their feet and the alpha backs off and then the herd is back at peace. So you use those same principles. And the reason why those principles, I was like a big light bulb went off is in my work, every single principle that I learned to use with kids with trauma were the identical principles to use in natural horsemanship. Like believe that they have a life or death mentality. If a horse doesn't want to get in a trailer, you don't beat them in a trailer and say, you idiot, it's just a, you know, trailer. No, you say like, wow, this is really tough for you today. Like you feel like you might die. If you get in that trailer, like, let's work with that same thing you would do with a trauma kid. 
Um, you don't be punitive. Like you don't say like you idiot, you know, and beat the horse over something or tell them that they're stupid for not wanting to go through a puddle. Like you, you work with them. Um, and you do things that are relationship based. Like let me show you that you can trust me and then we can go through that puddle together, which everything with kids that have survived trauma is very relationship based. So yeah, those correlations to me were like, Ding, 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 ding. Like, how come I, nobody has gotten these two populate, these horses with this population together before? Um, and I searched online and I really didn't find specific equine therapy programs that had, uh, that worked with foster and adopted kids. Yeah. I've, um, uh, I've, we've been involved with foster care for probably what, 10 years or so now. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know of any programs in our area. I've heard of a couple programs over the years. But I've I've not been involved with any myself, or we don't have any close by. But I can see where that would be really beneficial, especially for as foster parents to learn some of those techniques. You know, to learn the technique to not respond in anger because all you're doing is threatening their their survival in their mind. You know, and I used this example not too long ago, actually, um, with with another guy I was talking to, and and you know, I have a. He's six now. I think he was four or five at the time. And he looks at, we were talking about something one day and I'm talking to him and, and, and my thinking face has that furrowed brow look. It's, um, you know, that's the face I make when I think. And he, he looks at me all of a sudden he breaks out crying. I'm like, dude, what's wrong? You know, what's, what's going on? He says, you're mad at me. No, I'm not. What, why, what's going on? You're mad at me when your eyebrows go like this and he furrows his face up. He's, that means you're mad. And it's that, that ability to realize that, so much of what I say has nothing to do with what he hears. Mm. You know, I can tell a kid they're safe all day long. What was it somebody said a while back? Um, don't worry. They, you know, your kids are really actually are listening to you, but you should worry because they're watching you closely. And, you know, they, they pick up so many of those pieces, especially the kids with trauma in the background. They pick up those nonverbal pieces. And it's so difficult to people who haven't thought about that to really just be able to say, hey, no, it's this is okay. You're safe. You're this. But you have to show that in your body language as well. Yeah, well, there's one um, activity that we do. It's called Join Up. It wasn't coined by me. It was coined by a, you know, a natural horsemanship guru, uh, Monty Roberts. But the essential activity is a kid stands in the middle of what we call a round pen. So like a pen that's in a circular um, position. And the horse is not connected to them by any lead rope or anything. So the horse is free. The kid is free. The kid's in the middle. And they're working this horse by pointing and using body language and directions. They're kind of having this horse go in a circle around them. And what's interesting is the horse will often, it's actually difficult a lot of time, like the horse will be trotting. And I'll say like, okay, get the horse to walk. And the kid doesn't use any, doesn't say like walk or whoa or anything like that. Like the horse is, the kid is actually supposed to use their body language. So we talk about like deflating like a balloon, like to bring your energy way down, um, slow, like crumple your stomach a little, point your belly button down at the ground, things to try to make you seal, seem smaller. And then the horse will continue to trot, like not listening to them. And then I'll say something like, I will wait it out, wait it out. And then I'll say something like, what do you have for breakfast? And the kid goes, oh, I had Cheerios. And then the horse starts walking. And it's because even though our bodies were trying to get small, we were still like had a lot of anxious energy about like, please walk, please walk, please walk, please walk. 
because we are predators and we want horses or anyone to do what we want them to do, right? The accomplishment would be if that horse were to walk. But usually if we take our whole mind or energy out of it, then the horse feels relaxed and can walk. And I I can't tell you how many times I've had a kid be like, whoa, like I learned how to regulate my energy. It's the same way the other way. You know, when we want the horse to move, the kid gets big and their body language gets big and they puff out their chest um, and they are assertive. And it is so neat to see kids not only learn energy modulation with their body because they're getting a huge animal to mirror it for them, but it's also like with parenting, like I've learned so much through natural horsemanship where they teach you to kind of be as reliable as a fence post. So like pretend you like tie a horse up to a fence post and the horse is going to pull away, pull away, pull away dramatically because they're trying to get away from this fence post and they don't like to be constricted. But eventually they learn that like when they come close to the fence post, there's no pressure on them and everything is relaxed. And so they just need to stand next to the fence post. But the fence post doesn't have any emotion. It's not saying, whoa down, slow down. Like there's not a bunch of energy associated with it. You know, it's just as reliable as a fence post. And when we are parenting or we're dealing with horses or whatever, um, if we can be or if we're just not even parents, if we're just dealing with these kids or working with these kids, um, if we can be as reliable as a fence post, like state the expectation and allow the kid to do whatever they're going to do. If they're going to resist it, if they're going to come into it, whatever they're going to do. And we just remain kind of like, okay, like you're going to figure this out and I'm going to give you space to figure this out. But my energy will remain the same. My expectation, my boundary stays the same. And I will be reliable as a fence post. I think that that was one of the uh, bigger correlations that I learned. Wow. It's it's a lo- almost like a lesson I learned a long time ago. Not from my wife, but from I'm <laughs> certain a, a relationship prior somewhere that when, when somebody is upset with me or upset in general to look at, you know, for a guy to look at his wife or girlfriend and say, what you need to do is calm down. Mm. That <laughs> never leads to calming. Yeah, that works real well for you. And it's, you know, you'd think we're, we're smart enough creatures to be able to figure out how that works in the rest of life. But how many times do, do kids make you angry and frustrated and you raise your voice with them? Or it's even the other direction where I'll see a lot of parents that I would be doing psychoeducation with. And they're super, they're trying to be therapeutic parents so much. I call it like therapeutic parenting overdone. Where the kids are freaking out and they're like, I know your engine's hot. You just need to calm down. Like, we love you. We're not going to abandon you. Whatever your biggest fear is. And it's like, stop. Like, literally make space for there, but you don't need to engage with it. You don't need to like make space and be there and be reliable and be calm. But like this engaging in whatever this behavior is. Um, and, and it's difficult because me as somebody that teaches, therapeutic techniques like I will teach people about how you can talk to your kid about how their engine's running or how you can talk to your kid about um, emotions or label emotions for them but once they've turned to like right brain or they've turned to the point where they're kind of like freaking out or they've entered a place where they can't really learn from you to sit there labeling things um, or telling them like your engine's really hot right now it's running red we need to get it to green like not helpful Like, just show them that red is okay sometimes, and we can hang out with red. Like, stop talking. Yeah, that's that's been a a skill that's taken me a while to learn to to talk with my kids when when they're 
in that I call it hyper wobble. Um, you know, but when you get to that space of, of hyper wobble and they're like freaking out, the absolute worst thing I can do is to raise my voice at all, is to tell them to calm down. That's the worst thing I can possibly do. The the best thing I've found is if I can sit down and talk quietly with them and, and respond to what they're saying in a quiet manner because it's um it's that mirroring thing, you know, the the mirror neurons. And if you t- have a conversation with somebody who's yelling at you and you're the one being super calm and they continue to be wound up, it's almost like they go, wait a second, I sound like the crazy person here. Mm-hmm. And it just brings them down naturally. But that's not a natural response that most of us have. When somebody mm-hmm. yells at us, we don't usually talk peacefully back to them. No, we get excited, we get loud, and the next thing you know, you've you've got a screaming match, and then everybody's all upset, and they're saying, you know, difficult or mean things, and feelings are getting hurt, and you're you're doing more harm than good. Well, and a lot of times we want to fix it. Like parents want to alleviate, you know, and I've I've met a lot of adoptive parents that like. They're like, he dealt with so much trauma and he was abandoned and this. And like, so every time I even just leave the room, like, I feel like I need to tell him exactly where I'm going. And like this whole thing um, that they have shame and they're so like nervous about recreating any trauma for this kid. Um, and the thing is, is that we don't need to fix things for our kids all the time. Like we need to create space for them and we need to allow them to have all the emotions that they're going to have. But it's not helpful to always jump in and try to fix it for them. In fact, I saw a lot of kids that were like in this, oh, like I felt like it was like a pressure cooker for them. Like, um, because everybody was either trying to fix things or they were afraid that, you know, things would get too out of hand. And I would tell those parents all the time, like, let's go somewhere where we can be as crazy as possible. Like, let's color outside the lines. Let's scream as loud as we can. Let's jump up and down and then throw our bodies on the floor. Like, so that we can sh- see that, like, we can handle you as big as you are. And we can show you also, too, that, like, you can scream as loud as you can. And you can whisper really loud, like, quiet. Like, you can do all of this stuff. And we're not scared of it. And I think there's a lot of uh parents that try to put the lid on it because they're nervous. And if it ends up being a big, you know, blowout. And then the kid's just like, what if I do that thing that they don't want me to do? And it, it feels very anxious. Yeah, and, and you know, especially when you're dealing with kids in foster and adoption, you you've got kids who are afraid of maybe the you might be placement number twelve, mm. you know, because this behavior created that response, and I've seen kids who will, who will react that way just to, I think, I think it's just to take the pressure off of having to be a good kid, having to be the kid who's okay, you know. We know I know you're going to eventually just get rid of me anyways. Mm-hmm. And so where I'm just going to control that by being the one to to uh, start the the process of of throwing me out of this house, mm-hmm. and you know to date I think we've only had one kid who we we did have to find a different placement for, but you know that was that was a, a different situation. That was the only team we've ever taken in, and um, he had a real unhealthy attachment with with my wife, and um, and then he tried to to kind of butt heads with her one day and. It looked like he was about to get physical with her, and then my two other sons are, like, standing on either side going, Mom, you want me to take care of this? And I'm like, um, no. 
No, you don't need to take care of this. <laughs> Three emotional teenage boys all at one time was not a great thing. Yeah. It- but <laughs> in the end, everyone was safe and it worked out. But, you know, going back to just a couple of steps, you know, we have seen that so many times, you know, children will blow things up because they're, you know, we're like, okay, we're just going to, we're going to make you give up on us as quickly as possible so I don't get attached, so I don't get hurt. You know, let's just blow this up and get it over with and I'll move on to the next house. Or you have the opposite. You have the child that's so meek and so Mm. mild and deluding themselves down so much to not show who they really are because they feel like once they do, who could love me? I'm Mm. not worthy of this. And it's, it's such a hard place. There's so many emotions for kids to try to regulate. And especially... You know, kind of in our situation where I came from, I've had to learn a lot of self-regulation because I didn't have that as a child. And I still, you know, deal with it in my life now. There's times where I'm like, oh, let's go, you know, and I'm like, you know, I'll start at zero. And the next thing you know, I'm I'm up here at 12, you know. So, I mean, self-regulation doesn't just stop when you're a child. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had to learn the hard way and you know i still mess up because i'm a human you know especially with our 14 year old son because you know he goes into hyper wobble i'll go into hyper wobble and the next thing you know we've got a big huge explosion and so it's it's hard to manage those emotions especially for kids that have come from trauma Mm -hmm. because they're so worried about who am i going to offend who am i going to hurt you know, and so creating those safe places are what's most important so that they have a safe place to show those emotions. Mm-hmm. And too often as an, as adults, we don't realize that that's really what the kids are looking for. They're looking for that safe adult, that person that they can eventually trust because so many people have let them down. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be one of the ways, you know, to connect with an animal you know, they don't have an animal telling you, oh, you're bad, you're bad. You know, they have this beautiful horse that they can pet and they can groom and they can ride without that horse saying, well, you're not worthy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I just, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful program that you've started. Um, and w- when you started with um, with Stable Moans, what was, you know, are are you where you wanted to be? You know, was this always kind of your goal? No. Um, so I my goal was to start a program eventually someday, but I had no clue how that would happen. And um, so I just started, I went to a local horse rescue and they were looking for somebody to take on this mentorship program that they had an idea about. And I had kind of said, cool, can I do it with foster adoptive kids? And I ha- I just put out flyers or whatever. I, I matched up with somebody that um, was in that community. And I basically said, if you have foster adopted kids, they can come out, hang out with me at the barn for free. So of course I got plenty of kids to do that. Um, and it really was just hanging out. I felt like the, Horses were therapeutic in nature, so it didn't really need much more structure besides come brush a horse and hang out. There was no riding. 
uh, to the, to the, to this day, there's no writing. And that's for a few reasons. One is because, uh, the sessions are run by community mentors. So they're not trained to have horses, kids ride horses. But two, with, uh, foster and adoptive kids, a lot of times with trauma, it becomes about with relationships, it becomes about what can I get from this relationship rather than building a true healthy relationship. And I felt like if riding was a thing, then the kids would come and expect to ride and expect to use the horse rather than develop a relationship with the horse. Um, and it would become all about them riding the horse, then building, you know, life skills and, and empathy and all of that. But I was meeting with 12 different kids, 12 separate hours a week, and I had my own job. So that's really where the community mentorship piece came in. I was like, listen, I don't need to do this. And I could serve way more kids if I got community mentors to sign up to do this hour. So I basically put out a training that said, hey, if you're into mentoring a kid once a week, um, come learn about uh, foster and adopted kids and learn about horses. And they didn't have to have any experience with either. And they came to a three-hour training where I did some trauma basics, our principles, what we do with the kids. And... Um, then I taught them like an on-site how you handle the horses. Um, and so that's how the mentorship piece of this program really developed. Wow. And that's great that you're able to bring people in from the community as well, because, you know, it does, the foster community does tend to get a little bit lonely, if you will. Sometimes it's, there's a small percentage of people trying to take care of what works out to be literally a half a million kids in the country right now. Right, right. absolutely, and. One of the big um, goals of this has been let's love on the parents. Let's love on these foster adoptive parents. Let's give them an hour worth of time that they can just do whatever they want to do for self-care. And let's have the, the community come in. And if they're going to become a mentor, they're going to learn about trauma. They're going to learn about what it is to, you know, that the story isn't over when a kid gets adopted, that there's a whole bunch of stuff that the community can continue to help with. Um, and I felt like the more community mentors we get, the more people in the community we have talking about this is a big issue and whether or not, you know, there's just no entry point. Like we talk about how do we end the foster care crisis? And it's like, okay, well, we need more foster homes or we need, uh, you know, more people to take kids in or we need more people to adopt. But I wanted to give an entry point to people who were interested in doing some work in this space, but didn't want to commit fully to having a kid in their home, which is a lot of people. And I didn't realize when starting this, but a lot of people that became mentors were interested in fostering, but they just weren't sure about it yet. And this was a nice entry point for them to be able to mentor a kid first. Wow. So have you seen parent, people who came in as a mentor and then eventually decide to become a foster home? Yeah, we have seen that. Um, we've also seen, um, yeah, we've seen that. We've seen um, people that were just like, whatever, board members or they supported us monetarily. And then they're like, oh my gosh, this kid came up for adoption through our, like in our church congregation. And some, they were wondering if somebody would take the kid in. So we took the kid in, but under one stipulation, will you take them into the stable moments program? Will you make sure that they have a mentor? And will you help us with this whole thing? So I think that even just having, knowing that there's like a community out there and that they will have some supports, uh, did allow some families to go ahead and make a further commitment. 
Absolutely. I, I don't think I don't think any of us is ever, are ever going to be able to end the foster care crisis until we figure out a way to fix humans. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit bigger goal than what we're prepared. To <laughs> I was going to say that's a very goal. lofty goal. But you know what we can do, and, and and this has been one of my kind of aha moments. I've come to realize is that what we're here to do, anyways, is not to fix these kids. We're not here to fix their trauma. Quite frankly, you cannot. You don't have that ability, and neither do I. But what we can do is create a space where a kid feels safe enough to start healing. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. when they start to feel safe, part of what you're going to see is they feel safe enough to act out a little bit. And you have to be willing to, to ride that storm out a little bit. And that's been a challenge for us in a lot of ways. And um, learning that that's what we're doing, though, has helped us to be able to provide that space and just that continued support, that continued safe place. And it's amazing how that will be the kind of the catalyst to let these kids finally step into a place where they begin the healing themselves. And it sounds like a program like you have is the perfect thing to help them have that safe space kind of kind of expedited into their life, you know, where they're maybe have the opportunity to be either alone or alone with a mentor and a, and a horse, but but to not have that pressure from from society, if you will, from parents, from teachers, from people who they feel are constantly judging them to have that safe space and begin their personal journey of healing. Yeah, and the the name Stable Moments really was, um, you know, obviously stable is a play on horse stable, but it's also stability. And then moments, I really wanted to portray that we do not have high expectations of like fixing anyone or that our mentors are fixed. Like these are small, a moment is attainable. Like, and if we can give a kid one moment of stability, one moment where they felt safe, um, and then we can build moment on moment where they're actually getting more of a stable foundation or they're actually having um, some more stability to be able to go back and, and work on some of their trauma, then great. But really, I wanted to boil it down for my mentors to really say like this, all we're creating is a moment, like a moment in time. And um, I don't know if you've watched the YouTube's The Removed series. I have. Yeah, that's really good. In that, I use it in my trainings. Um, in that, in anybody that's on your podcast that has not watched, uh, removed, at least the, the first one should. It's a 12 minute short film about a girl that's removed, but she says, um, you know, eventually it's the glimmers of light in their life that they remember and that they start to rely on. And when I hear that in our trainings, I, I, after that video ends, I tell the mentors, like, we are that hour a week is the glimmer of light. Like we're not going to fix what's going on at home. If they get switched into another placement, whatever their dad did to them, the fact that their mom's in jail, all that stuff, like that's not what we're here for. We are here to give a glimmer of light in what might be darkness. Um, and, and so, but through this, you know, I really had to develop a much more structured program because mentors didn't really know what they were doing. Um, and, you know, horses, that horses are like difficult to deal with. And, you know, these, these are like community mentors that I'm like, everybody's good enough. Everybody can come hang with a kid. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is a nightmare. Like, <laughs> you know, they're like, we don't know what we're doing with these kids. We're predators, right? So like, I don't care if I'm like, just being here is all you need to be for these kids. Like that wasn't enough for mentors. They were like, I kind of need the checklist of like, I'm here and like what I'm doing is good. And I'm checking off boxes. So I did have to create 
individualized plans of care that each kids get. Um, I had to create, and those are color coded for life skills that the kids are working on that were associated with all these activities, some equine, some non-equine, um, therapeutic activities that I made that were color coded to match the plans of care. So a mentor could come in and go, Oh, I have a blue and purple kid, which might mean that they're working on healthy relationships and responsibility. And I'm going to choose blue and purple activities. So they could grab those activities, see exactly what they're supposed to do, and also see some discussion questions that they can talk with the kid. Because I would have like a mentor and a kid sitting there grooming, and they'd be silent. And they'd both be silent grooming, which is great if it's if they're just calm and sitting in a calm space. But usually it was more awkward. And they're sitting there, and they're grooming. And then they get done with grooming, and they go, okay, we're done. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. Like, there was so much more we could have done with that. Yeah. Like, so um, the discussion questions and even breaking down grooming so that we can talk about, like, what brush is the horse's favorite brush? You know, what reactions does does the horse have with this brush? What part of their body do they, like, brush the most? Like, helping the kid actually get in attuned with the horse's experience. Like, it's so much different than just, rushing through all of your brushes real quick and then, you know, putting the horse away and saying, okay. And then even the, you know, mentor had discussion questions of like, this is what you could engage the kid in in discussion to help build empathy about the horse, to help understand their experience better, to start talking about body language and what does that different body language mean? But I needed to provide all of that for my mentors. So once I did, that, it really started uh, running like a well-oiled machine. And that is really what made me go to a, a international conference for it's called the professional association of therapeutic horsemanship. And I spoke about my model and I was just hoping other people would maybe serve kids with, with mentorship program through foster and adoption. But um, other people there were like, do not give this away, package it, write a book, sell it. So that's where really the curriculum came from the certification program and all of that so that people can, actually license the stable moments brand and say that they're running a stable moments location. Um, and I really like that because I feel like I'm much more of a like global thinker anyway, like just serving 25 kids in a small town in Georgia, like uh, my heart and brain is much more wired for like, how do we scale this and um, help everybody everywhere? Absolutely. Yeah, I was looking at your website. You have, um, <coughs> you have several locations, don't you? Yeah, we have about 15 locations now that are different equine uh, facilities. You know, there's people that get the book and um, start their own mentorship program, but they don't license the brand. Okay. Um, And that's fine. You know, they can say it's like Billy Bob's mentoring program because for whatever reason, they don't want to run it exactly like we do. But for the people that want like ongoing support, you know, we do monthly calls. I give them all my administrative assets. I give them a member portal. I give them promo videos, all this stuff. for those people, they get to enter into a license agreement. But the thing is, is they have to run the program exactly how I say it is to be. You know, if you're going to say you're yeah. a stable moments program, then you're only – we have so many people that say like, oh, your program would be great for veterans or like your program would be great for kids with divorced parents. And I'm like, it wouldn't – it wouldn't be fair to like train three, you know, mentors for three hours on uh, children with tough backgrounds and trauma. Um just to turn around and say, actually, your kid didn't have any trauma, but you're getting mashed up with this kid that had a parent that went through a divorce. Like our program is about trauma. So 
I've, I've stayed very laser focused in, in our target population. Well, that's great. Yeah. Um, well, I guess before we forget to ask the important questions, how can people find you, you know, if they, if it's something that they want to see, if they have a location close by for them to join or if somebody has a heart for this, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of little girls who used to love horses who've grown up and, and started to make a career out of something to do with horsemanship. And I, I think there, there's probably somebody out there listening who thinks I could do that. Yeah. So go to stablemoments.com. And even if we don't have a location near you, um, contact me. It's Rebecca at stablemoments.com. But we have like, um, this year we have four new trainings that are going to certify a whole new slew of locations. So there might be one that's getting close to be in your area. Um, but yeah, if you have kids that you think would really benefit from this, let me know because it's also nice. I can go back to the therapeutic, uh, the professional association of therapeutic horsemanship and say, hello, like there's people in Nevada that really want a program. Um, if you guys will get certified, then you can serve these families that are asking. And then, yeah, uh, totally. If you're a mentor, um, we can get you hooked up with one of our locations. And again, mentors have, can have zero horse experience and zero experience with kids. You do have to pass the background check, but, and do some training. Uh, but besides that, you can go dedicate one hour a week for 10 months of your life. Wow. To a child. That's a whole 10 <laughs> hours. That's not a whole lot over the course of almost a year to, to be able to, to make that, that change in a life. No, because... wait, sorry. It's one hour a week for 10 months. So okay. 40. 40. 40 hours, yeah. 40-ish hours, yeah. So that's one work week. <laughs> yeah, donating one work week to helping some kids. That's Because, oh, yeah. you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that in our lives, we a lot of times we, we don't realize the things that we put all of our energy into. I work with a lot of guys, and I've known a lot of guys over the years who who work all week you know, long, and they're busy complaining about their wife or their kids or whatever. And they go home at the end of the week so that they can drink some beer and watch sports on TV and then they get up on Monday and come back to work and they go back to complaining. And that's kind of the cycle of their life. And finding a place to be able to get that, get some meaning in their life, to be able to talk to people, to be able to create a change in a life, to create change in other lives of kids around you. You know, just like, you know, where you were originally starting out, helping out, you know, a handful of kids every week, what you're doing now spreads that exponentially across the country. And you well, never and know. I I would love to, sorry to interrupt. I'd love to say as well, which is going to be like, wait, why do we just talk about horses for the last 45 minutes? Um, but so I've actually learned through some feedback that the most critical piece to this actually seems to be the mentor and not the horse. As much as like going to a farm is nice and a horse is nice. There's plenty of kids that enter our program that don't really care to have much to do with horses. Um, and they're more like into science or like doing archery or whatever else that's offered at the farm. But like the horse thing isn't really their niche. And I, my first reaction to this is like, this is awesome because that means that this would be an effective program in a community organization or in a church. So my hope for the program this year is to partner with a church um, and to have a church launch a complete non-equine stable moments program. So the whole thing would be mentors and activities. All the activities would still be therapeutic, still be a plan of care, all of that stuff. But it would be like, you know, playing baseball and making cards and making bracelets, arts and crafts, sports, 
all these things that are non-equine. Um, because if I could get this in a bunch of churches where they're supposed to be, as you know, um, you know, taking care of orphans mm-hmm. and widows. So if, if we, um, can get this into churches where the, the ask isn't you have to be a foster parent, but the ask of the church is like at this church, we're going to have, you know, we're going to serve 25 kids and we need 25 of you to step up. That's a lot. Um, that's a lot easier of an ask than to ask for money. Absolutely. Because everybody's asking for money and everybody's <laughs> a little bit cynical about that. But the truth is, is that we all have something we can donate. We all have some time yeah, we can donate. We all have, have, yeah. And that, and again, that, that difference you can make does not end at the end of that week or at the end of that 10 month program. You know, that, that difference lasts a lifetime and not just one lifetime, because if you can get one kid who can move into a safe space and have a healthier set of relationships with people, you're going to change their life. You're going to change their spouse. You're going to change their kids. You're probably going to change their grandkids. You know, you make that difference through history going forward. And that's the most beautiful thing that you can do is to pay that forward to generations past, or not past, but generations yet to come. Yeah, and I see, like, I do see, say, all you start with is a stable moments program, and then people's eyes are more open to foster adoption, and then more people foster and adopt, and more people feel supported in doing that because they have a church that has a big mentorship program, and they know that their kid can be part of a mentorship program at the church. Like, I do um, see this being a, a, you know, a family that's supportive of, because it takes a village. We know that. Yeah, that's me and Amanda were having that conversation <laughs> just the other day. That whole you know question of it, whether or not it takes a village, and I don't know if it requires a village, but if you can have a group of people who who all have different strengths, it allows them to make up for some of your weaknesses. And I mean, let's face it, even though I try to convince my kids I'm perfect, um, they probably know a few <laughs> of my weaknesses. well i I would say like a village it's a good point that you say like does it really need a village like it could just take really two amazing parents but a village can make you or break you and i will say in my experience even with my sexual trauma the village was the ones that like it wasn't the trauma itself that broke me it was the village that didn't accept me after the fact or um you know, shamed me or shunned me or whatever you want to say after the fact. And had that village wrapped around me, I possibly wouldn't have, you know, contemplated suicide or gotten into bad relationships or, you know, experimented with drugs and all the stuff that I did to kind of escape the village. So, yeah, I do feel like um, in times of turmoil, a village can make or break. Um, a child can make or break a family. What do you think it was that, that helped you push through your hard times? Um, I think that the horse being there as a constant, like, and this might just be one thing, like, it, you know, I'm not saying it's necessarily horses. For me, it was horses. Um, but I think that maybe if it was like, you know, softball or one thing that like you do keep your passion and you believe, like, I believed I was valuable. You know, my behavior wouldn't tell you that, but I did think I was good at 
horses. I thought I was good at training, which gave me some ownership over like me being valuable in some sense, in some arena. So I do think that a kid having an outlet, um, where they know that there's a strength somewhere, um, is pretty important. You know, if I didn't have that, if I didn't think I was good at anything, I can't imagine how much worse my, um, behaviors and my decisions would have been made. So I do think that for me, having that one outlet where I was, um, good, where I felt like I was good at something. You had power. Had some identity. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mention it that way because we've, I've had kids who, who will come to me and, and talk about the thing that they love to do, whatever it is that sets their soul on fire. And they will use those words. I'm pretty good at this. Mm. And it, it's a piece of their identity. And I think we, we can lose that a lot of times and not understand how important that is for these kids to realize that, you know, even if you're not great at a sport or great at, you know, with, with animals or great with whatever the thing is you want to be, you know, you can, you can create that, that feeling of worth, that value with a kid. If as a, an adult mentor, as a foster parent or just a member of a community who's working with the program, you can help create that, that sense of worth and value and bring a kid back to the place where they're, where they're ready to heal. Because yeah, I think and, without and that worth, in, they can't heal. Yeah. And in the program, I have this, we have this factor called the I matter factor. And I tell mentors, like, how would you expect a kid to follow any expectation if they didn't believe they matter? So the, our first spot, our first thing to do is to start building their, their value. And one of our activities that we do is an about me activity. And rather than a vision board, cause it's like, how do you tell a kid to do a vision board if they don't even know who they are? So. We have an about me board that we do with every kid that enters the program. That's just like, who are you? Let's cut things out of, you know, magazines or whatever. And let's just get a snapshot of who you are. And it could be, you know, kids do like they cut a piece of pizza and they're like, that's who I am because I like, pizza. <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't need to be this like in depth, like, but it starts to, it's something they can bring home. They can hang on their wall, whatever placement they're in. And it's like, this is you. This is a snapshot of you. This is like the things you like to do. If you're into cars and you like pizza, like, that's cool. And that's okay. And that can be honored. And so they start to like, have an identity. Um, and then we can work that into sessions. You know, if a mentor says next time, like, Oh, we know you like cars. So tell me something, you know, teach me something. And then the kid feels a little bit more valued because they can tell you something about their life or, um, or it just shows a healthy relationship. Like people that love you would probably remember something that you told them from week to week. Um, so it's pretty interesting. This, Things that you can do with such small time, small activities, yeah. they seem simple, but they really help a kid understand, like, you, you're you a person, like, who? let's find out who you are. Because how many adults haven't done that? <laughs> no, a lot of us haven't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're like, I don't know who I am. I'm whoever on TV told me to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not wrong. You know, <laughs> culture tells a lot of kids who they are these days instead of the parents. And even as a foster parent, that's a little bit more of a challenge because you're telling a kid who's not biologically your kid, who doesn't necessarily have a close attachment to you at this point, you know, you're trying to tell them who they are. And it's really easy to let culture tell them who they are because they've been hearing that their whole life. And well, not only that, from experience, you're, you're taking that child 
you're taking them away from everything that they've known, and you're telling them where they've been, where they've come from is bad, and you have those feelings of, okay, I come from a bad place, but that's my mom, that's my dad, that's my family, am I bad too? Am I going to be bad? Am mm-hmm. I going to be just like them? Because this is what I've learned. This is where where I've come from. So I'm automatically inherently bad too. Mm-hmm. And we have to we have to give them something else to hold on to. You know, we have to help them see that there's a different future in store. And I think that your program is showing that to children, and that's that's such a wonderful thing. You know, you were talking about the me- meager kid. That's like. Oh, well, I don't even know what I like. You know, like, all the only thing I could come up with is that I like pizza. It's, like, stupid. And it's like, dude, who doesn't love pizza? Right? Like, that is not stupid. I wish I had pizza on my board. And you can start to build this, like, normalizing. Like, you are like other people. And you're individual. And we're going to find it. And then a lot of it at the barn, you get to, um, you get to help them. So, like, if they come to a place where they're like, you know, I don't, I don't know what I want to do and I'm not good at anything, which we see those kids all the time. We can say, okay, well, let's try. Do you want to try basketball? Do you want to try a science activity or do you want to try brushing horse? And then they're like, I don't know. And you're like, okay, well, let's try all three and we'll just do it for five minutes and we'll see. And afterwards they can tell you which one they like the most. And then you're starting to build on looks like you're kind of into science, dude. You know, looks like you're kind of really good at grooming horses, dude. And you can start following that a little bit. And then we see them actually build that identity and ownership and doing things like writing an essay or going to school and talking about these cool things that they do at the barn. That's awesome. Yeah, that that identity piece is a huge part because I think you're right. Most adults don't really have a, a solid answer for that identity piece. You know, if you ask, a, a, you know, if I ask another guy, you know, hey, you know, tell me what you do. His response is most likely going to be the name of the job he's chosen. He's not going to tell you, "Oh, I'm a dad." You know, what do you do? I'm I'm a foster dad. I'm a dad. I you know, I like to go do these things with my kids. I do these things with my wife. We identify so much with all the wrong things even as adults. We identify with with the thing that we do for a living instead of really understanding who we are and then using that as as a springboard for who we want to become. And it's hard if that's who you are as an adult it's really hard to, to be able to, to get a kid out of that because a kid sees our identity as their family. And if your family was involved in the drug trade, if your family was involved in some sort of you know sexual crime, if your family was involved in something that landed them in jail or or deceased or some you know anything like that, your identity is is a twisted version of who you really are. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that that's an awesome idea. Did you have any other questions? Um, I guess um, I did want to ask, are you where you want to be with Stable Moments, or do you have a bigger vision, something else that you're looking to accomplish, or, you know, where where so, do you see yourself going? Yeah, so it's a great question. So I want to preface the answer by, I truly have, I, I mean, you can't have no ego, right? But I try <laughs> to have no ego around how big this gets or where it's going. I try to stay really unattached so that I can stay aligned with whatever God has in mind for it because God 100% has, 
helped me build it. And it was like, it was one of those things, like, I can't not do it. But I didn't know I was qualified until I was like, oh, I'm doing it. And <sighs> I'm speaking and I'm writing a book. And like, I didn't know until it was like, actually, you can look back and these, this is how the program ha- has um, come to fruition. So anyway, I do feel in my heart that God is kind of calling me to create an un a non-equine part of this program. And if we can successfully get into churches and if it ends up being, um, you know, picked up and widely used by churches, there's really, you know, I would love stable moments to be at churches across the country. And now, now we're talking about a program that could have a significant impact on the foster care crisis. So it's when people go like, I couldn't help, you know, that's a big deal. Or like, we're not going to like help, you know, we're not going to help change big numbers. You can, you can help big numbers by a podcast. You can help big numbers by writing a book. You can help big numbers by starting a silly program that has 12 kids and you're the only one doing it. And it just grows into something like, I think a lot of people that changed big systems in our history did not start out thinking they were going to change big systems. So I literally just do whatever's in my heart. And sometimes I'm like, really, God? Because, and I don't commit myself to one certain faith, but I have a really, uh, really strong connection with God. And like this, the podcast that I started doing was like, okay, you should do a podcast. You should do a podcast. You should be able to do a podcast. And I'm like, I feel like to shut off the the voice in my head, it's like, okay, I'm doing a podcast. I'll launch January 15th. I'm doing it. Stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, I've been led kind of in this go towards the, the church ang- angle and try the non-equine so that you can impact even more. But the way I do that is I reach out to people. I see if they'll let me do free trainings for them and all of that. And, um, and the rest is in God's hand. Like if they email me back, if they don't, maybe not my time. Um, I really just don't have a big attachment to it. And I, that's allowed me and I don't make it, you know, I have a full time job, so I don't make it my pressure it to be my income. And that's really allowed me to stay in a space that is in the flow and kind of aligned rather than, um, you know, so attached to my outcome that I lose vision of really what I'm trying to do. And the thing is, is I've said in my podcast, if I learn that helping to end the foster care crisis has nothing to do with stable moments and like at, you know, in year five, I trash that whole program and go do something else. I'm, I'm all about just pivoting. I'm like, I'm totally fine with just trying to do the best you can do until you know better and then you do better. I love that. Yeah. We use that statement quite often, <laughs> you know, because I mean, it's really a good statement. You know, you, you do what you can with what you know, but you're always trying to, to learn more, to grow. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think your program is amazing. Um, I want to say thank you for your program, you know, because our children need more programs like this, whether it's a horse program, whether it's a music program, I, the possibilities are just endless. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our children need safe places to go and find other kids to connect and they need mentors and so I just want to applaud you, you know, and say thank you. Thank you for our children. Thank you. And thank you guys. Like, thanks for being out there and being foster parents that wonder and are curious and ask questions. And 
a very scary place is to think we know it all. Um, so thanks for getting curious with me and, and being, being one of those people. Yeah. This is one of those things that we, we learn kind of sets our soul on fire. And that's usually one of the questions I ask a lot of the guests is <laughs> what sets your soul on fire? I think we've already answered that question pretty clearly, <laughs> but you know, that that's the thing is your thing may not be becoming a foster parent and that's okay. If it's not, I don't want you to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, your thing might not have anything to do with horses. If not, you probably shouldn't go do that. But we all have something that, that God or whatever cosmic being you want to believe in has set in your heart to set your soul on fire. And I think that's our job is to find that that thing and go chase it and go mm-hmm. set your soul on fire because you never know where that will lead. Well, yeah. that's the thing. If you set your soul on fire, you can change the world. Mm. Yep. I mean, all of history is, is full of those stories. Those are the stories we tell, you know, in in the history books about how the world has changed because of one person's choice, one person's decision. And, and that's that's what the world is made up of. And I think the worst thing you can do is just put your head down, go to work Monday through Friday, and then come home on the weekends, drink your beer, watch your sports, whatever it is that, that you do to, to anesthetize yourself from the, the trauma of life, and not do something amazing. And that's the piece that I think you've done here that's just so wonderful is that you found that, yeah, okay, you had a program that you thought was was going great, and then you figured out a way to make it bigger, then you found a way to to spread it across the country, and and you're willing to pivot and turn and change and do whatever it is that's going to create the outcome that you see fit. And I think it's wonderful because so much of us get tied up on ego that, that you can look at it and go, okay, this might be the perfect thing. But it might not, and I might need to just dump it and start over again. And that's mm-hmm. that's an amazing thing to hear you say that you're willing to do what needs to be done for these kids because that's our biggest oh, – and me and Amanda, that's our biggest goal here is we know that we have a world full of foster kids, and we know that we can't take them all. We know we can't change the world, but we can take a kid in and change their world. Mm-hmm. And that's the piece that's so powerful. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just I'm grateful you you were able to come on the show today and talk with us about how you've done that because that's something that I believe we really all need to look at a little bit in our lives is how we can how we can help to change the whole world for one person at least. Yeah, well, and thanks for having me on. I really I would love to check back with you in you know a year, two years, and see where it's all at. I would love to, um, you know be able to say to all of your listeners, boy, if you Google stable moments, you certainly will have a location that you can, that's in drivable distance that you can take advantage of. Um, but hopefully that's on the horizon and, and hopefully this has been a insightful conversation for your listeners. I'm sure it will be for them because it was for us. Well, thank you for coming on today. And we will talk to you in a year or two to find out just just how (laughs) amazing it's gone. All right. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for tuning in. You can find Rebecca at StableMoments.com or on her podcast, Stable Moments, on all the popular platforms. She's on social media at the handle Stable Moments. Be sure to subscribe or follow her podcast and ours, too, if you haven't already, so you can hear what we're up to. If you're looking for a Stable Moments program near you, click on the Locations tab on our website. And as always... Stay-